This podcast is brought to you by the Village of Bedford Park, your home for business. Over 450 businesses strong and growing with a safe, reliable Lake Michigan water supply. Visit VOBPBiz.com and bring your business home to the Village of Bedford Park. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. Hey, it's 12.03 on a sunny Thursday afternoon, April 27th. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rob Hart. Time is passing, and there's still no word about the opening of a planned temporary casino in Chicago's Medina Temple. We'll update that story in our next segment. But right now, the reports on GDP, jobless claims, and pending home sales lead today's data. Let's check the numbers with Gus Fauché, chief economist with PNC Financial Services, based in Pittsburgh. Gus, thank you for joining us today. 1.1% is the initial estimate of the gross domestic product in the first quarter of the year. That's an annualized rate of growth, and that was well below economists' expectations. And actually, kind of surprising if you do follow the nowcast, that is uh, that statistic that's compiled by the Atlanta Fed, which had growth in the 2% range for the first part of the year. Yeah, what we saw was is that inventories were a big drag in the first quarter. So uh, businesses added less to inventories in the first quarter than they did at the end of last year. The good news is is that demand in the economy was quite strong. Consumer spending in particular was up more than 3%. Uh, you know, businesses continued to invest. So I would pay more attention to the strong demand indicated in the GDP number rather than the headline number, which much of which was driven by inventories. What does this tell us about? about the fight against inflation. You heard in the business update from Ann Cates already an analyst saying that uh, stagflation is a real possibility. Uh, what does the latest report tell us about the fight against inflation? Well, in- inflation picked up again in, in the first quarter from the fourth quarter of 2022. Uh, We'll get more data on inflation tomorrow when we get the uh, personal income and spending report. Uh, But, uh, you know, I I think inflation is just too high for the Fed. Uh, At the same time, consumer spending growth remains very strong. So this means that the Fed continues to tighten in the near term. We get at least a 25 basis point increase when the Fed meets next week. And then after that, we'll we'll have to see what happens. But it depends on what happens with inflation. Is it expensive? Uh, slowing as the Fed expects, or do we see it continue to remain elevated? Now, does the GDP report tell some or all of the story? Because it was about a year ago, we were talking about uh, several quarters of contraction, and there was a debate about whether we are in a recession already. Uh, That certainly was not the case. Uh, So how can we interpret this report, not only in terms of the fight against inflation, but just the health of the economy overall? I think if we look over the past year, what we've seen is is that the economy has expanded but 1.6%. That's about equal to the economy's long-run average. And so I think that it indicates that, yeah, we have quarters where things are better, quarters where things are worse, but overall, the economy is growing at a moderate pace. The question is, with the big increases in interest rates we've seen over the past year or two, uh, will we get a recession this, uh, later this year? And I think the answer to that is yes, we 
will see a mild recession starting in the second half of 2023. Jobless claims uh, falling once again this week. Uh, just going to show you that uh, that employment uh, market continues to basically hold the economy on its shoulders. Uh, absolutely, and that's a big reason why consumer spending continues to increase because we've added on average 350,000 jobs per month over the last three months. Uh, unemployment rate remains near a 50-year low, uh, so the labor market is still very strong. And until we see a bit of a cooling there, I think it's going to be tough to get a slowing in inflation. And then very quickly, uh, pending home sales fall 5.2% in the month of March. And uh, despite all the talk of higher mortgage rates, it's a function of there just aren't very many houses to sell. That, that's right. I mean, part of it is an inventory issue. Part of it is a, an affordability issue. Uh, and as long as supply remains constrained, then affordability is going to remain uh, low. And that's going to be a problem for uh, potential home buyers. Gus Fauché, Chief Economist, PNC Financial Services in Pittsburgh. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up, when will downtown Chicago get its temporary casino? Your best stock option. This is the WBBM Noon Business Hour. Tourism season is starting to kick into gear in Chicago, but there's still no word on an opening date for a temporary casino in the downtown area. Let's get a status update from Greg Hines, columnist, Crane Chicago Business. Greg, thank you for joining us today. And the old Medina Temple building in the River North neighborhood used to be the home to the Medina Temple, the Shrine Circus, a couple of Bozo specials, and then it was also the home of the Bloomingdale's department store up until a couple of years ago. And everyone thought They'd be putting the finishing touches on the casino, the temporary casino, right about now. The clock is ticking. What's the holdup? Well, don't know. Uh, what we know is uh, is that uh, this is uh, no bozo business. This is big business for Chicago. The city really needs the money. Uh, this thing is going to spend off in taxes. And uh, Bally's, of course, uh, wants to, wants to uh, start paying some of its costs. But to do any of that, they need final sign-off by the Illinois Gaming Board. Um, the gaming board has approved uh, the site in terms of the fitness of the uh, of the landlord. It's, it's owned by uh, Friedman Properties, but they haven't ruled on on the application itself. Um, uh, the, there's a board meeting today. A lot of people thought it might be on the agenda. It's not, and the board is not scheduled to meet again until the middle of June, which gets really late if you're going to open it uh, in time for this season. The Bally's people had hoped to uh, to have it open uh, by uh, by the end of June, and uh, I now think there's a real question about whether it's going to happen. And this is more than just uh, having the casino up and running in time for the summer tourist season. Uh, there are some pension issues and some uh, scheduled dates that need to be met. Yeah, uh, under the law that authorized Chicago to have a casino, uh, the proceeds from it, the taxes from it, were directed to go to pay old city pension debt, primarily uh, police uh, and fire debt. Um, that is a really important financial ingredient in the city's uh, turnaround. Uh, the rating agencies have all noted that in their upgrades of Chicago recently. And the city really needs that money to start coming in. Uh, if there's a problem here, and I'm not saying there is a problem, this may just be bureaucrats being bureaucrats and taking their time. If there's a problem, uh, it's going to uh, cost some angina in uh, in uh, in uh, like the Johnson's administration. Now, is this are, are preparations underway in the building itself to actually prepare this to become a casino? Is work going on right now? I mean, is this a situation where uh, Bally's can put all the everything in place? to turn this thing into a casino, and then they're just waiting on approval from the gaming board to turn the lights on and unlock the door? 
Uh, pretty much, uh, the construction crews have been in there for a while. They pulled they pulled the building permits a couple months ago, and the city tells me I haven't been there myself for a while. But the city tells me that the the work is going on. I don't believe there's any gaming equipment in there. I don't know if you can move in like roulette wheels and slot machines and so forth until you actually have the approval. But the, the, that would seem to me to be something you could probably do in, in short order. Um, I'm not sure how much how long it takes after you get the license to actually open it. But uh, they have done most of the things uh, that you would think construction-wise in anticipation of going to get it. Of course, they've taken a risk. If for some reason, they don't get their uh, their, uh, their license or out the money they spent. But uh, the company Bally's is, is, is betting that uh, they are going to get it. Greg Hines, columnist, Crane Chicago Business. Thank you for the update on the progress on the temporary Chicago casino. Coming up next, the infotainment legacy of the controversial talk show host, Jerry Springer. It all happened right here in Chicago. Lunch money for all generations. This is the WBBM Noon Business Hour. The death of Jerry Springer in suburban Chicago today at the age of 79 is prompting an examination of his career and his influence on TV. Let's bring in Tom Lason, media analyst in Seattle. Find him on Twitter at Tom Lason. And you can find him on the radio right now in Chicago. Tom, thank you for joining us today. And this is not just a national story, at least as far as Chicago is concerned. Because for many years, Tom, this was his home base. He was at the NBC Tower from 1991 until uh, 2009. That was when uh, Connecticut passed a tax break that forced a lot of TV shows uh, to move their production to Connecticut from either New New York or Chicago or elsewhere, and uh, there's my own personal memories of him, Tom. I mean, I, I I actually hosted a talk show with Jerry Springer on the radio about 14 years ago. No chairs were thrown, but just thinking back on that show and how it was almost optimized for a universe of 100 cable TV channels in the 90s. It was designed to make you stop channel surfing. Those production practices and that search for viral moments that people talk about, that is going to live on for a very long time. Yeah, it really is. And I was looking at Amazon today. You can still buy um, Jerry Springer non-FCC compliant clip shows. uh, Too hot for TV. For $300. $300, Rob. That's what kind of a cultural phenomenon it was. And just think, if uh, if you just called that 900 number uh, when they were actually advertising it on late night cable, you could have picked it up for, what, 30 bucks back in 1999. Yeah. Yeah. I think you bring up a good point. You know, Jerry started with a pretty straight public affairs show in 1991, but by 1993, it had to be totally reimagined. And then it was off to the races. It was part of a time when you know, news and information was sort of morphing into the tabloid programming and more infotainment type of programming. Um, and it gave other shows social permission to go off the rails, you know, Inside Edition, A Current Affair. And we can't forget, too, speaking of Chicago, it's why Ron Majors and Carol Marin quit when they tried to turn around and put Jerry on to do commentaries within a newscast. So he was highly controversial, certainly a cultural phenomena, averaging seven million daily viewers in the afternoons across the country. He was in every TV market in the U.S. And uh, I was in high school when that whole controversy broke out in May of 1997 when Channel 5 uh, wanted to add commentary uh, to their newscast. And they said, hey, why not Jerry Springer? He's in the building. He did commentaries on Channel 4 in Cincinnati with uh, no problem at all. But of course, by that time, the show had so much baggage and Ron and Carol had uh, so much influence and 
integrity. They both quit the newscast at the same time, and that set Channel 5 back uh, for a couple of years afterward. Uh, they had to take out a, an ad in the paper to uh, explain their reasoning to people. It was a very big controversy at the time. Oh, heck yeah. It, you know, I was in TV news for, for 30 years, and it was just uh, it was just earth-shaking. But I think a lot of people felt you know, that that was just crossing the line. Throwing Jerry inside your newscast um, was just beyond the pale. And I think that Carol and, and Mr. Majors certainly, you know, expressed that by, by their actions. Um, you know, he was a, a top-rated syndicated show, like we mentioned before. And, um, you know, he was a, a cultural phenomenon. I continue to say he's a little bit of a Rorschach test not only about television, but about, you know, the dumbing down or the coarsening of the dialogue in, in this society. Is he, was he simply reflecting who we are or did he um, somehow influence us to become this? You know, that's one of the great questions that still lingers. And I think he, he would say that the show was a goof. Uh, he did take the guests seriously. He didn't, uh, he wasn't approaching this cynically and saying, I'm pulling one over on you, the American people. Uh, he knew it just was rid- a ridiculous uh, piece of theater that was on TV for an hour a day. And, uh, and it's his, he, he said maybe its most noble purpose was to uh, give the forum and the spotlight to Americans who normally wouldn't have it. And uh, I think that's kind of the way he saw it. But at the same time, you know, the search for viral moments, the search for moments that would make you stop, uh, you know, always, you know, the, the fights in the Jerry Springer show were certainly moments that would make you stop. But you have, you're still finding that. You're still trying to, they were viral moments before we knew the term. Yeah, and The View tries that in a little bit of a different way. And it's interesting, though, like I mentioned before, Jerry with 7 million daily viewers. And now the top-rated show, The View, is about two and a half million, so less than half of that. You know, the only the only programs, and Rob, we've talked about this before in the past, that can command that kind of viewership now are live sports events. Tom Layson, media analyst based in Seattle. We could go on for hours and hours and hours. I mean, we could also talk about the the cultural influence of the Morton Downey Jr. show, which was another phenomenon uh, that burned out very quickly in the late 80s. But that's for another time. Tom Layson, media analyst based in Seattle. Find him on Twitter at Tom Layson. Still ahead in Technology Thursday, how tech is shaping the future of healthcare. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio. WBBM TV talk show host Jerry Springer has died at his home in suburban Chicago. He was 79. A member of the Air National Guard appears in court in a case tied to the leak of classified documents. It's Technology Thursday. How the use of telemedicine, remote tools, and sensors, along with artificial intelligence, is impacting healthcare. Also on the tech beat, a look at what's behind a big jump in shares of Facebook parent company Meta today. WBBM Business, the markets are higher. The Dow is up 343 points, the Nasdaq up 244, and the S&P 500 is up 57. We have 60 degrees right now in Chicago under mostly sunny skies, going up to 67 inland. It's 1231, topping our news at the half hour. A legendary TV talk show host whose show originated in Chicago has died. Here's CBS News correspondent Deborah Rodriguez with a look back on the life and career of Jerry Springer. 
His family and publicists say Jerry Springer died peacefully at his home in suburban Chicago. He presided over the syndicated Jerry Springer show for 27 years, mediating family feuds and other sticky situations. Willie says one night of bad decisions is his biggest regret. Willie, Willie, what's going on? Episodes often turn chaotic, but produced powerhouse ratings before the show ended in 2018. The British-born Springer told the BBC... Yes, it's a stupid show. I always say our show is stupid. But for one hour, it's an escape from regular life. Springer also served as mayor of Cincinnati in 1977. His family says he was diagnosed with cancer a few months ago, and his condition took a turn for the worse this week. Jerry Springer was 79 years old. Till next time, take care of yourself and each other. Deborah Rodriguez, CBS News. A Massachusetts Air National Guardman accused of leaking classified military documents is in court this hour for a detention hearing. In a filing asking a judge to keep Jack Teixeira in custody, prosecutors say the 21-year-old kept an arsenal of weapons and talked online about violence, murder, and an assassination van. They write the damage Teixeira's already caused to national security is immense, and the damage he's still capable of causing is extraordinary, that he may still have unreleased material of tremendous value to hostile nation-states that might try to help him escape the U.S. Teixeira has been in jail since earlier this month, and his lawyers are urging the judge to release him, arguing even if the court thinks he's a flight risk, it could set conditions like home confinement. Sagar Magani, Washington. It's 12.33 as the noon business hour continues. Markets are in plus territory today. We're joined by Matt Shapiro, president, MWS Capital, based in Chicago. Matt, thank you for joining us today. The latest reading on GDP shows that the economy is slowing down, and yet markets are rallying. Yeah, you know, and the GDP report for statisticians listening out there is actually very good reading because underlying, you saw this morning the market was up, then kind of waffled a little bit, and now just, you know, really limit up with most everything up today because the underlying uh, GDP report was actually very good, um, high savings rate, um, 2.9% uh, personal expenditures, inflation decelerating from what we had, you know, during the, the reopening from the, the pandemic. And, you know, everyone's really doing pretty well. The personal savings rate was extremely high. Income was up 8%. So, you know, if you read a little bit flash report on the Wall Street Journal just now, uh, those fears of a recession that we had earlier in the week with the market falling are now reversed. So recession, again, pushed to the future, uh, not happening anytime soon. And corporate earnings reports, look at Facebook just popping higher, um, are actually reasonably good. Now, if I've learned anything from doing this program for almost a year and a half, and that is uh, if the vibes are good on Wall Street, uh, that lasts until, what, uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, 8.30 tomorrow morning? It's it's always a temporary feeling. Well, you know, I, you make a good point, Rob. Um, let's look, uh, listeners out there, oh, what has happened during this overall downturn? Now, obviously, we've recovered some to start this year, but we've had seven relative lows, crushing relative lows, and the S&P 500 spilling down because of the Fed, interest rates, and things like that. We've had about five recovery attempts. All of them have failed. Finally, we are here in the last few days. Um, we were just collecting and just whispering higher. 
Then we had that bad spill the other day on recession fears, now up heavy. If we can hold 4150 in the S&P 500, that's put in, that will put in what we call a sustainable floor for the market. So to have good news, earnings uh, for companies are supposed to come out better for the next couple quarters. We'll see if we can launch higher and have a real recovery and a recovery in the sentiment, Rob, you know, that people don't have to fear that the market's going to, you know, test the lows. And once people see that the lows are behind them, then stocks can take on new highs, certain of them that are doing well. Matt Shapiro, President, MWS Capital in Chicago. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up next in Technology Thursday, how computers and robotics are changing healthcare. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Credit, debit, and totally free. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Technology Thursday, and this afternoon we're discussing the role of technology, including robotics and artificial intelligence in medicine. We're joined by Paul Hockman, president of Humongous Media and former tech editor for the Today Show based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Paul, thank you for joining us today. And when it comes to the use of virtual doctor visits, telehealth visits, uh, how far did the pandemic move the ball forward in that particular area? Well, it moved it a long way, in particular, patient acceptance. Now, doctors um, had to adjust, of course, too, to somehow feeling confident in their analysis of the patient's problems. But for patients, and all of us are included, you know, anytime you wanted to visit a doctor, you probably felt better seeing him or her in person. But because telehealth became necessary, as you pointed out, during the pandemic, a lot of, a lot of people just got used to it. <clears throat> Pardon me. So what I would say is that that's the biggest change. But then what's happened then is all the inputs, meaning all the information you give your doctor when you have questions, are now themselves being affected by technology. So a lot of things have changed. And then uh, how, how is telehealth now being used to uh, uh, make you know, doctor's office visits virtually uh, that much easier? You don't have to worry about uh, waiting and making an appointment and possibly waiting weeks to get in. And then uh, how is it also changing uh, the way in terms of making it cheaper? Well, it's making it cheaper because it's making it faster, and it's making it faster because it's making it better. Here's how. With AI uh, especially, a lot of the data that just was ending up in the, in the, the office of the individual physician that was treating you um, is now being you know, anonymized but shared. AI is actually allowing uh, doctors to gather huge amounts of information from thousands and thousands and thousands of patients' outcomes, thousands and thousands of patients' symptoms, and so on, so the doctor can actually leverage the incoming information that the patient is giving them, not just against the patient's, um, you know, experience in life, or not just about that doctor's, uh, say, 50 or 100 patients' experience, but now millions of patients. The result is it's cheaper because the doctor doesn't have to spend as much time doing analysis. That analysis is being done in part for him or her by AI. And by the way, this is a really interesting statistic. Radiology, which is a notoriously difficult field, somebody analyzing a still image to decide what's going on inside a person, 
radiology outcomes are improving because AI is taking all that data and helping the doctor interpret what they see. So the result is less expense because less time, more profit margins certainly for the healthcare providers, but also better outcomes for the for the patient. So it's it's definitely a virtuous circle. I was going to say in terms of artificial intelligence, I mean the one thing it can do to improve productivity across all sorts of uh, sectors of life is that it just makes it that much easier to analyze trillions of data points now. I mean, that's the AI revolution. So it sounds like you're going to get uh, better and more accurate diagnoses from doctors. That's exactly right. In fact, one version of that, you're, you're, you're dead on. RPM technology, which is remote patient monitoring, that actually sends data to doctors and doctor's offices from the patient themselves all day long. Anybody who has an Apple Watch is familiar with the fact that that can pick up some personal data. Um, there is a, ro- uh, a robotics company and a, and a knee and joint replacement company called Zimmer Biomet, huge company, that actually allows doctors to remotely monitor the gait, that is the walking habits, of somebody who has a knee replacement. And way before a complication occurs, a doctor can see if that gait has changed in a bad way, and they can... Without the patient worrying about it, the doctor can then say, hey, wait a second, that gate has slowed down or there are fewer steps and so forth. I think we need to intervene. So long before an expensive outcome of, oh, boy, we need to redo this surgery or something, a doctor can intervene with, with physical therapy, knowing all that data in advance. So, so that's one of the ways it saves lots of money and time. And then very quickly on the robotics front, uh, possibly uh, having a robotic physician's assistant. I mean, a couple of years ago, I went to a, a medical device convention at McCormick Place, and they allowed you to use use one of the robot arms that was used for microsurgery to manipulate various microscopic objects. And it was really cool um, and also very beneficial. But what are some of the other ways that robotics can be used to improve uh, the healthcare experience going forward? Well, first of all, I want to know if the patient survived your your procedure. But second... Um, <laughs> well, his um, nose way- lit up and there was a buzzing sound. <laughs> exactly. And it buzzed. The patient buzzed. But to answer your question, um, the remote, techno- remote, pardon me, remote control of a robot is actually helping joint replacement because joint replacement in part depends on a very accurate uh, angle of insertion. In other words, to insert the, the knee or the hip. If it goes in exactly the right angle per the patient's needs, that outcome is much better. The robot can guide it much more precisely than a physician potentially can do by hand. Paul Hockman, president of Humongous Media, former tech editor for the Today Show based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thank you for joining us today. Join us this time tomorrow for Entrepreneur Friday. Cashing in with conversation. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Shares of Meta are up around 15% today following the release of its first quarter report. Let's take a closer look with Angelo Zeno, senior industry analyst with CFRA Research based in New York. Angelo, thanks for joining us today and this uh, latest uh, boost in meta stock is uh, just the one more step in a bit of a recovery that's been taking place. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely is. And it's quite quite a recovery it is, right? I mean, it, it, it is followed probably one of the, the steepest declines on, on record for a company the size of meta. And, um, you know, the, the rebound here really has a lot to do with uh, some of the cost-cutting moves that they've announced here. Over the last six months, we're not kind of seeing the, the fruits of their labor on that side of things going to result in some significant operating margin expansion, which we've seen here just in the last couple of months. But there's more to go here over the next two to three quarters. And when you kind of start looking at the top line as well, when we start thinking about the advertising spending landscape right now amid a very difficult macro economy, 
It's holding up much better than I think most had anticipated. And as long as it continues to do so, we think there's uh, better times to come for ahead into the second half of this year and into 2024. And when you kind of put that on top of all their other opportunities, whether it be related to AI, the metaverse, reels, um, there's, there's some great opportunities for this company. A couple of months ago, when uh, Meta was really taking its lumps on Wall Street, a lot of analysts were saying that uh, this is more or less a time to go bargain hunting. And with the uh, share price of 74% year to date, turns out those analysts were correct. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, like I said, I, you know, we do think there's there's probably more to go. I mean, unfortunately, there there was a 70 percent decline that there are many shareholders, long term shareholders had to contend with. The shareholders that were able to kind of sit through it are now kind of um, starting to, to see those benefits as well, especially if you were kind of um, fortunate enough to start kind of, uh, you know, building up or adding to some of those positions on the pullback. So, um, when we kind of think about, you know, specifically why we're so uh, kind of confident about the expectation ahead, you kind of look at the free cash flow potential of this company. We're looking at um, sig- some significant improvement over the next couple of years, north of $30 billion in 2024. A lot of that is also going to go towards buybacks. So um, on, a t- on top of those kind of cost-cutting efforts, the top-line growth, um, a lot of that cash generation um, will be put to uh, good use and won't necessarily be used towards the metaverse as was originally planned 12 months ago. And then, Angelo, I mean, outside of just the, the fact that the entire tech sector had to contend with the uh, rapid rise in interest rates and they never really had to deal with that before, um, were there any other particular re- like specific reasons outside of this uh, metaverse transition uh, that uh, w- what driving the fact that, that Meta's stock got beat up so much last year? Well, I mean, and we did see it across, to your point, across the entire tech sector. I mean, every single large cap tech name was down anywhere from, let's call it 30 to 70, 80 percent in nature. And, you know, not only was it didn't have to do with a lot of the multiple compression that we saw from the rising interest rate environment, but also had to do with essentially a profit recession that we saw uh, in 2022 for many of these large cap tech names. A lot of these tech companies essentially built up some significantly significant headcount in 2021, 2022, and all of a sudden, we saw a quick deceleration in growth in 23, and the tech industry wasn't prepared for that. And that actually resulted in uh, profits actually going down for most of these names last year. And we're kind of seeing a reversal of that now take place in 2023, which is also a big reason why you're seeing a reversal in the stock prices. Angelo Zeno, Senior Industry Analyst with CFRA Research in New York. Thanks for joining us today. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. 
Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. 